0: Would you pray with me? Friends, I think it's always helpful that we pray in light of the Scripture. Maybe some of us this morning just need to begin our worship time confessing to the Lord, God, I've spent a lot of my week with my mind set on the things of the flesh, just earthly things, temporary things. God, give me grace to have a mind that's set on the Spirit this morning. Father, I pray in Jesus' name on the authority of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, that there are people gathered here today whose minds are set on the flesh, but at the conclusion of the service, through our singing, through our giving, through through baptism, through our prayer time, through the study of your Word, they'll leave with their minds set on the things of the Spirit, where there is life and peace. God, we want to begin by... Saying hallelujah, praise God Almighty, that you have done what we could not do. We could not save ourselves. We could not rescue ourselves. We could not redeem ourselves. But hallelujah, there is a Savior. And His name is Jesus. He's full of compassion and He's full of power. And I pray in Jesus' name that the gospel of our salvation will be clearly proclaimed in what we sing, in what we say how we treat each other and in our going, how we live in this world, would we be marked as a people who have been in, are in, and long all the more for the presence of the living God that we can have access to because of what Jesus has done for us. Help us to be a people marked with grace and truth, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and read God's word together. This summer, we are spending our Sunday mornings in the glorious passage of the suffering servant, Isaiah, the end of chapter 52 and through Isaiah 53. This morning, we'll read and give our attention to verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Let's pray together, and God, we're asking for grace and help to understand these words accurately, what you intend to say through them, and again, help our minds to be set on things above. Set our minds now on spiritual things. Set our minds on Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Uh, we're going to continue through Isaiah 53 and again verses 4 through 6. We studied these verses uh, last Sunday and we're going to come back again to them today because they still have a number of things to say to us in Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6 are sort of the center of Isaiah's message. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 are the center of the Old Testament's message. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 are the center of the Bible's message message. And in long story short, you could kind of already figure this is where we were going. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 is the essential message that God has for your life, and we need to understand it. It's the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Now, Isaiah is prophesying several hundred years before Jesus is walking on the earth, and included in his message, in his prophecy, are these insights about Two different people, or at least they seem like two different people. The first, uh, if you're in Isaiah, turn with me to Isaiah 9, and we'll read some verses. Isaiah 9, you know, Isaiah 53, just flip back to Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. Oftentimes you hear these verses at Christmas. I think it's all right to hear them all year long. Isaiah 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born... Isaiah's prophesying, somebody's coming, and he's going to be the king, and his kingdom's never going to end, and he's mighty, and he's powerful, and he's a good counselor, he's wise, he's he's glorious. And then we also have, for example, Isaiah 53, verse 2, he has no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men. Now, this isn't going to be a very difficult thought Uh, exercise to do. Isaiah prophesies that one's coming and he's a glorious and powerful and mighty king. He is, as they would call him, the Messiah. And then Isaiah also prophesies that one's coming who's despised, he's rejected, he suffers tremendously. He's what they would refer to as the suffering servant, right? So you got on one hand, glorious king is coming. On another hand, you have one who's going to suffer tremendously and he's coming. Now, would you ever put those two together well they certainly didn't but here with the benefit and blessing of hindsight we can see that Jesus is both right he is the glorious king whose reign will never end and he is also the one who suffers and bringing the two together we understand who Christ really is And what we want to see this morning is the one who substitutes himself for us and atones for us. Friends, he actually is the conquering and glorious king. We ended last week uh, emphasizing those two verses, or two verbs rather, in verse 4. Anybody been thinking about this this week? I hope so. You know, we study on Sunday morning, so we think about it through the week, and then that's how God changes our lives, that he is not a savior who just bears our sorrows. He carries our griefs. Do you remember that's where we ended? Because we want to be a people who believe the whole gospel. Does Jesus forgive us of our sin? I mean, we need a little bit more energy here. This is the glorious good news, right? Does Jesus forgive us of our sin? Yes, glory to God, hallelujah. Does Jesus free us from the bondage of our sin? Absolutely. It's glorious good news that Jesus forgives us for our sin, but I want you to know that the Bible teaches that yes, he lifts up Remember, that's what the word bears mean. And then he also carries it. We ended with 1 John 1, 8, 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen. It's for freedom Christ sets you free. Therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, Jesus forgives you, but he also frees you. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. The father didn't forgive the prodigal son so he'd stay in the far country, right? Jesus doesn't say, Lazarus, come out, so he'd stay in the tomb. God has not called you from death to life to keep living like you're dead. Amen? He's not freed you so that you would exist, kind of be breathing, but not living. He's freed you and forgiven you to restore What life really is and that is a relationship with him so yes he forgives us for our anger but friend i gotta tell you if you're a follower of jesus he doesn't want you to continue being angry all the time does that make sense he forgives you for looking at pornography but 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 he didn't forgive you so that you just stay in it in fact that's what the bible says how can we who died to sin go on living in it amen now The forgiving is instantaneous. The freeing is a little bit of a process. Amen? Now, when we come to Jesus, become his follower, become his disciple, we don't just stop sinning. Still wrestle with this, right? But we ought to be growing in Christ-likeness. Same thing happens with a baby, right? Little baby's born, and then that baby starts to grow and mature and in time becomes a mature adult who then is teaching other children as they come along and that's a little bit of a picture for what it ought to be that's why Paul gets frustrated with the Corinthians and he says you you ought to be mature by now but you're still infants so uh, Isaiah 53 verse 4 where we ended last week is he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows when we set out to study substitutionary atonement we said we're going to answer two questions what has he done And the second question was going to be, how does he do it? Now, the first question we did try to answer last week. What has he done? He has forgiven us and he has freed us. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Right? Now, this week's question is, well, how does he do it? How does he do it? And before we answer that question, it might be worth just asking, are you really free? He's freed us from grief and sorrow. Now, what most of us do is we try to... We try to get rid of grief and sorrow through means that only produce more grief and sorrow. A lot of grief and sorrow to false hopes, isn't there, when they demonstrate that they're actually false hopes? Well, let's talk about how how we are truly set free. We we, we want to solve the problem by knowing what the problem really is. So we know life's full of grief and sorrow ask you, what's the root cause of our grief and sorrow? Is the root cause of our grief and sorrow economics? Is the root, root of our grief and sorrow politics? Is the root of our grief and sorrow a lack of education? No. Therefore, therefore the ultimate remedy cannot be economics, politics, education. We should work to improving all of those But thinking that any of them will ultimately remedy our griefs and sorrows is only going to produce, who's tracking with me, more grief and sorrow. So Isaiah prophesies. somebody's coming, and he's more than just an economist. He's much more than just a temporary politician. He's a glorious teacher, but he's more than that. He's not just come to educate us. He comes, behold, there is born for you this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. Our greatest problem is sin. Our greatest need is being saved from our sin, and therefore our greatest need is a savior. That's who he is. That's what he does. Today, we simply answer the question again, how does he do it? Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 6 gives us a great deal of insight into how he does it. Surely, love that word, Hebrew word, nevertheless, He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Do you see it? In two verses, we move from grief and sorrow to peace, and something happened to get us from one to the other. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Like me, many of you have uh, been keeping up with what's going on in Thailand, right? This soccer team of 11 to 14 year old boys uh, walked into the cave and then got trapped, rescue operation, they found him, they found the group, now they want to get the group out, right? Now we've got a picture we'll put on the screen here that just uh, is an indication of what's going on, right? I mean, they went in the cave, it's one of the boys' birthdays, they went in, having a nice walk in the cave, and then the rains came, and the way out was blocked. In other words, the way they went in, they could not come out. I don't know if you're keeping up with the story, but they said today's the rescue day. So far, four of the boys have come out. The rescue operation is happening. What what we learned is the boys and their coach got in a predicament that they themselves could not remedy and when i listen to that i'm sure like many of you it's like my heart my thoughts just went out to this group of young men and the predicament that they found themselves in and it's dangerous we know it's dangerous because one of the rescue divers that went in lost his life on thursday and he's trying to come back out so the whole world's attention has been focused on this group of people how are they going to get out they can't rescue themselves They're needing somebody, and we're praying that they can find their way out. And as I heard the story, it is indicative in large part of what the Bible says is true of us. We have a condition, we have a predicament, and we are not able to save ourselves. We think we can. That's why you ask the average person, hey, uh, either how do you get to heaven or how do you make your life better? And nine out of ten people will tell you there's something that I do. Just be a better person. Be more moral. How's that gone, by the way? How's it gone saying, I'll never do that again? How'd that go? Make it 24 hours, right? Because the only thing that can rescue us from the flesh is the spirit. We need someone to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. That's the very definition, friends, of a savior. The first step, though, is admitting that you need to be Rescued. And that's a place that not a lot of people get to, quite frankly. Because sin produces the worst combination imaginable in the hearts of human beings arrogance and ignorance simultaneously. There's nothing worse than that, right? Nothing worse than not knowing what's really going on and being proud about it. That's why we need God to come and intervene. You want some good news? The Bible teaches that God has come along and he has intervened, and he did it from day one. Now, we can take the picture down of their predicament, but just having that in line, there are several things that they've learned aren't going to work. Tried pumping the water out, right? In fact, I read an article this past week where they had such a response of people who wanted to help. I mean, good intention that came along, and as the government is pumping the water out, lo and behold, another group of people, well-intentioned, was pumping the water back in. And friends, that is a pretty accurate picture of what goes on in our life. Some of the most devastating things to your soul are going to be done with good intentions people who had some good advice and they came along. But I want you to just get something settled in your heart right now. If anybody comes along and offers you a hope that is a hope other than Jesus, I don't care how well-intentioned they are, they've just given you some very destructive advice. So if you're a church member, for example, and you've got a position in your life to be a friend of somebody, your role is you've got to point them to Jesus because all the other hopes are not real hopes. They've tried everything they know to try, right? Have you tried some things in your life that just didn't really work? And to tie it tied in with some previous sermons. He tried to improve the outward appearance, right? Man looks on the outward appearance. That's why when Jesus shows up, they weren't really impressed with him. That's what Isaiah prophesies. He has no former majesty that we should look at him, right? No appearance that we should be drawn to him. But he is the Savior. You have to see him with eyes of faith right? Got to walk by faith and not by sight. It's painful, but it's helpful when God removes from us our false hopes. This is true that oftentimes we have to endure some hardship before we learn the foundations that aren't worth building our lives upon. Now, we are trapped We can't work our way out. We've got a big problem, and I think one of the most helpful places that we find a description of our problem is over here in the book of Exodus. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to join me. Uh, We're moving from Isaiah to Exodus in Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33 has one of my all-time favorite verses. Have you got a favorite verse? One that you just come back to and God's used in your life for great instruction. Exodus chapter 33. i got to tell you something before we read it. Uh, this is right after uh, the Israelites having been delivered by the glorious grace of God through the Red Sea, right? Not on account of themselves. It wasn't because they were good swimmers they got across. God intervened. Amen. Bible's always teaching us this. If we're really to be set free, God has to intervene. doesn't matter how good a swimmer or how moral a person you think you are, God has to intervene. But then, and this is also true to us, they returned to their old idolatry. I mean, God had showed up in such glorious power, and then they said, we want a golden calf, and they bowed down and worshiped it. And so God came to Moses and said, because of their idolatry, you know, I made a promise." Years gone by to Abraham that his descendants were going to go to the promised land. And God says, I'm going to keep my promise. I do what I say I'll do, but here's the catch I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to give you an angel, and that angel's going to go before you, and the angel's going to drive out all your enemies. This is Exodus 33, if you want to go back and read it. And the angel's going to go before you, and you think you got. Powerful foes, the angel's going to knock them out, and you are going to go into the promised land. It's just that I'm not going to go with you. Now, can we pause for a moment here? Can we just talk like family? For most people, here's what God said. God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm just not going to go with you. Now, can we just talk for a moment? For most people, they'd take that in a heartbeat. Going to bless me? I, I... I'm going to be provided for. You're going to protect me. I'm going to be safe. I'm going to be secure. I'm going to go to the promised land. The catch, though, is your presence won't be with us. Now, I've just got to be honest. In my own heart, there's been times where that's really what I wanted. I just want to be healthy. I just want to be able to provide for my family. But you, this is what sets Moses apart. The Bible says Moses is the most humble man who ever lived and Moses said that that's not going to work for me and his response is what is my favorite passage in the Old Testament Exodus 33 let's start in verse 12 oh I did it again verse 11 Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face-to-face as a man speaks with his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. If you walk with the Lord, you need to be bringing somebody up from behind you that can walk with the Lord too. That's a bonus uh, principle for this morning. Verse 12 Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways. You ready for the key phrase? That I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this is your people." Remember, God had said, I'll send you, bless you, just won't go with you. And Moses said, that's not what I want. It's not what I want. Can you use this scripture to search your own heart? What is it that you want? Would you be good with God's blessing just so long as you don't have God? Would you be good with his stuff so long as you don't have him? And you need to think about this when you think about going to heaven one day. What is it that you think heaven is, right? Heaven, friends, is being in the very presence of the living God. Verse 14, he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. I want you to put those two things together, friends. The only place you'll ever find real rest is in him. Not in his stuff, in his presence. Moses said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? I pray this frequently for our church family. God, if we're known for anything, may it be that this is a place where the people love the presence of God. Now, real quick, man, there's so much to say there, and I'll just preach this passage another day. But God answers Moses' prayer request. He said, show me your ways. Did you see that, that Moses asked that? And in the very next chapter, here's the way of God. You ready for it? Exodus 34, this is when Moses is now hiding in the cleft of the rock, right? The presence of God's coming. And then God's going to reveal who he is. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and following is, I think, the most theologically significant passage in the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, there's the divine name of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, right? It's the name God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. And anytime God uses that name, he says, I want you to pay attention. This is the only time in all the Old Testament that the divine name of the Lord is used back to back. And that's meant to, in their manner of doing things, Highlight, exclamation points, asterisks, big arrows, this is who I am. Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, God's going to say something, the Lord, the Lord, there it is, back to back, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin we tracking together how many of you good with it so far glorious good news isn't it but here's our big problem we're not done yet in God revealing who he is is God compassionate is he slow to anger is he abounding in steadfast love yes 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 and yes Let's keep reading, though. But who will by no means, in the Hebrew language this is stated as emphatically as anything can be stated, will no way, never, ever, ever, ever clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Here's how you know if you're getting this. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. We're tracking together? God just told us who he is. And we live in a generation, by and large, loves that first part. Compassionate, kind, and generous, and steadfast love. But did you see the second part? And this is what defines our big problem. He will by no means clear the guilty. And that's a problem. Do you know why? Because the Bible says what? We're guilty. Who's guilty? I am. You are. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the problem. How does a loving and compassionate God forgive our sin while not allowing the guilty to go unpunished? If we are guilty, and we are, how can he ever welcome us back while still punishing the guilty? Do you see the quandary? I like that word, don't you? quandary. It's a problem. How can it be both, right? How how can he forgive us and not compromise his holiness? Now, can we just recognize this big question? How how does God forgive us while still being holy is not the question that uh, gets the attention in our culture. Who did LeBron signed with. That gets a lot of attention. Who's going to be the next Supreme Court nominee? That's going to get a lot of attention. Anybody listen to the news this morning? Anybody talking about how does God clear the guilty while remaining holy? Uh, That's not the question at the forefront of a lot of our minds, and here's why. Those who walk according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who walk according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit so just an encouragement for you this morning if you've never thought about this you need to because you can go your whole life just distracted by the news of the moment and not asking the big question what sin demands is that someone pay the debt brings us back to isaiah Friends, what I want you to know is that the Bible doesn't say (laughs) that our sins are forgiven just because God was in a good mood that day. The Bible doesn't say that our sins are forgiven because he's compassionate and gracious and just said, yeah, you got a sin problem, but you know what? Let's just sweep it under the rug. Now, he's holier than we are. This is a big problem for us because he's holy and we're not. And so we have a hard time even thinking in terms. We, We think sin is not really a big deal. We think sin, for the most part, sort of like a library fine. I know you said the book was due back at such and such, but can he just let it go? Just the 10-cent deal? Can No, no. Sin against holy God, the creation, telling the creator that he doesn't matter is a huge deal. So we're back to how, how can he ever forgive us, clear us, demonstrate love and compassion to us, while the guilty don't go unpunished. Does anybody know the answer to this, by the way? There's only one way he can do this. Substitutionary atonement. That's why we say our whole faith, right, is built on this. Let's dig just for a few minutes a little bit deeper here in Isaiah 53. What we see is Isaiah prophesies That somebody's coming, who's going to who's going to have happen to him what sin deserves? I mean, look at the words: wounded, crushed, chastisement. Those are all very strong Hebrew words, and they're all talking about punishment that is inflicted. Stripes by his stripes we are healed is a Hebrew word that speaks of bruises and welts and raw wounds from the strokes of a whip. And we need to reconcile in our lives that this is what sin deserves. This is what sin deserves. And yet Isaiah is prophesying that somebody is going to be crushed, be wounded, have the stripes put on him for things he himself has not done. You're in Isaiah. Would you turn with me over here to Jeremiah? This is just the very next book in your Bible. Jeremiah chapter 1. I think it's helpful if we're going to talk about being saved from our sins, that we really do understand what sin is. So when I said Jeremiah 1, what it really meant by that was Jeremiah 2. Verse 4. Jeremiah 2, verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of, of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. I want you to really think now, God's speaking to to his people, listen to what he says. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Can we just pause here for a moment? When God really begins to speak to a people, do you know who he always begins with? They're spiritual leaders. Why didn't the priest say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. That grabs my attention, friends. The shepherds Transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I will contend with you. God says, Well, I'm not letting this go. And with your children's children I will contend. For across the coast to Cyprus and sea and send to Kedar and examine with care. In other words, look all around the world. See if there's been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Just talk a moment. That's the essence of sin. The essence of sin is to prefer the gifts of God instead of the God who gives the gifts. You understand the difference, right? The essence of sin is preferring anything in creation to the Creator. That's what sin is. It's looking at something that God made and saying, I'd rather have that than you. I mean, just suppose that you got a 9, 10, 11, 12 year old son, and uh, he really wants the latest video game console. So you buy it for him. you give it to him and he's so excited i mean he's oh i can't believe you gave me this dad this is awesome and then he begins to play it and you come back a little bit later and say uh uh, can you can you uh cut that off and come to dinner this is just a minute just a minute i'll be right there and you say come back and give a little can can you dad would you leave me alone trying to play this game and and, and then the gift that you gave him becomes a barrier between you and him and all of a sudden what you gave to bless became the object of his attention to the detriment of what your own relationship and now the personal relationship we have is obstructed by a gift That's what Jeremiah is saying. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me. I don't want anything to do with me. They they don't want, uh, even even the teachers of the book, among them, they don't know me. And then they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, cisterns that can't even hold any water. And the vernacular that God uses in the heavens about this is it is appalling. They have lost their minds we we've lost our minds it's uh, appalling that anybody would be in love with the world and bored with god that is diametrically opposed to how it ought to be i mean all i can say friends is if you are bored with god you just don't you don't know him <laughs> you never really see Him. You don't understand Him. God's anything but boring. But I, can I tell you this, though? I do believe as you mature in the faith, you'll find the world a whole lot more boring as time goes on. It's the same old, same old. The movie that everybody's got to see It's really not that great. I can basically tell you how it's going to happen. be a big explosion, the credits are going to roll. And now, <laughs> now... Now you've got to wait through the credits to see that scene at the end of the credits. You've got to sit there longer. We'll move on. There's a word the Bible uses for what we're talking about when you prefer a gift that God gives to the giver himself. That word is idolatry. Now, Can you imagine the boys in the cave having a rescuer come And say, oh, we can get you out of here. And for them responding to say, I'd just rather stay here. That's what the Bible says we're like. It's so bad in here. I can adjust. Got water. They're still counting on the rescuer to bring provisions. As long as you keep doing that, I'm just going to stay here rather than, that's what the Bible says. The light of the world came but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. We esteemed him, smitten by God and afflicted. We love the things that cause us grief and sorrow more than the Savior who rescues us from them. Real quick, a few quick things. First step, the Bible would tell us is that we recognize we really do need to be rescued. Second, you realize you can't do the rescuing. That brings us to step three. You trust the one who can. That's him. You see, Isaiah is prophesying he's wounded for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. We're going to look at two New Testament scriptures and uh, tie all this together. So, turn with me to First Timothy, chapter two. First Timothy, chapter two. In the Old Testament, Christ is promised and predicted. In the Gospels, Christ is revealed, and then in the Epistles, Christ is explained. And so, we're going to get some explanation here. First Timothy, chapter two, verse three. First Timothy two three. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is, count them with me, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. It's just one way out. Can you imagine the boys in the cave, guy comes in, we can get you out of here. There's just one way. And then responding, that's so narrow minded. Are you kidding me? All the ways there is to get out of this cave, you're going to have the audacity to stand in front of me and say that there's only one way. You need to broaden your horizons, you need to be more open minded. Get that nonsense, bigoted mess out of here that there's just one way out of here. What did the Bible just say? It's just one mediator. Not the best mediator, not the best of all the options. It's just one way out. There's only one way that God can clear you of your guilt while not letting the guilt go unpunished. Now again, friends, I recognize and understand that's not the big question in the world. But it is the big question of the Bible. How do we have in Genesis 3, they're driven out. And in Revelation 21, they're welcomed back in it's only because Christ God himself came in the flesh it's just one way he went to the cross he took our sin he took our debt he took our iniquity he didn't say we're going to put it under the <clears throat> we're going to put it under the rug we're going to sweep it under the carpet he said we're going to put it on my shoulders and i'm going to bear your punishment in your place that is the doctrine who's tracking with me of substitutionary atonement one other passage is second corinthians so if you're in first timothy you're going to flip back a few books towards the front of the Bible, Second Corinthians 5.21. twenty-one. Second Corinthians 5.21. twenty-one. Second Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, that's God the Father, made him, that's God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, I love that verse, don't you? It's a trade. When I was nine years old, I got into baseball cards. We had a neighbor who was a little bit older than me. He came to my house to trade baseball cards. And I remember pretty clearly sitting at the kitchen table and had all my cards out there. I was just new to this. I didn't really know what was going on. And he offers me a trade. And I'm about to go through with the trade. When one of my older brothers walks through, eyes get big, say, what are you doing? It's a terrible trade. Don't give him your Mark McGuire for whoever it was. Now, this is back in the late 80s, right, when Mark McGuire card was probably valuable. You're about to make a terrible trade. Now, I had someone trading with me who was out to get me, right? Use my ignorance against me. And this is how we're conditioned. That taught me. From an early age, if there's ever an offer made that's too good to be true, what is it? It's probably too good to be true. There's a catch. I mean, we're Americans. We don't want, You need to read the fine print. I do want you to read the fine print. Because it is it is an unbelievable offer. To make that kind of offer, do you know what you'd have to be? Loving, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, keeping covenant, generation after generation after generation. To offer, I'll take your sin, and in exchange for you believing that I can do this, and at the cross I accomplish this, Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you now my righteousness. All we like sheep have gone astray. I've got a couple pictures I'll show you. Do you know that sheep aren't terribly intelligent? Might have figured that out. Looking at that picture, you can, train, you can train all sorts of animals to do all sorts of things, I man. I, I have watched an elephant get up on a ball and just kind of walk around. I've seen lions tamed and tigers do crazy things, bears juggle, dogs can fetch, cats can always find their way home. All we like sheep have gone astray sheep, sheep are not intelligent you can't train them to do anything sheep are defenseless we got another picture this is called a when a sheep gets cast it means that sheep gets on its back and no matter how hard it tries it can't roll itself over again it can work hard, it can try, it can keep going, but it's completely prone now to predators. Can't do anything about it. That sheep will lay there <clears throat> till it dies or a predator comes along. I think i got one more. Sheep have terrible eyesight. They need glasses and bifocals and contacts, stronger prescription than anybody here. What that picture is, you a little rescue dog there. If we could speak dog, he would, he's saying, have you lost your mind? You are literally about to walk over the edge to your doom. That's what that dog is saying. But sheeps, their eyesight's so bad, they will walk right off the cliff. Now, what I want you to know is, we don't want to get it backwards. God's the creator. So he doesn't come along and say, man, is there something out there that kind of is indicative of how human beings are? No, he creates a sheep so that he can say, this is how you are. I made the sheep, and I put the sheep together in such a way to be an object lesson for you. Because you are unintelligent. Can you receive this with some grace? You are defenseless you will walk right into things that will destroy you and you'll think you're doing the right thing all the way through it. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. And man, we have made a mess. But he's laid on him our iniquity. You know what sheep need? Sheep need a shepherd. Isaiah prophesies, there's a lion coming. He's going to sit on the throne forever. And man, he is full of power and authority. And and then Isaiah prophesies that a lamb's coming. (laughs) On the front end, you all we wouldn't have been able to put all these things together. But in the full scope of scripture, you see the lion became like a lamb. I'm not saying that That he became unintelligent, bad eyesight. No, no, no. And he certainly wasn't defenseless. said, man, don't you know I could say a word and all the angels are showing up and y'all are done for. But we're going to continue on in Isaiah's prophecy. And he says he did go like a lamb to its slaughter. Why? Why? Because the Lord, the Lord God, full of compassion, steadfast love, keeping covenant. But he will... By no means clear the guilty. Now, for two weeks, we've studied the doctrine of substitutionary atonement in an effort to think about the rock-solid foundation of our faith. Friends, there is a way out. God brings you to the point of realizing, I need to be rescued. Then God brings you to the point of realizing, I can't do the rescuing. And then God brings you to the point, somebody can, somebody has There is a way that he's provided. It's a one way, but I'll tell you this, it's a sure way. Because at Calvary, the love and compassion and slow to angerness of God is on full display. But what's also on display at Calvary is the guilty do not go unpunished. Isaiah prophesies the glorious king is going to be a suffering servant. It's not his iniquity. It's not his transgression. It's not his sin. But it is all put on him. And he says, I'll trade you. I'll trade you my righteousness for your sin. Have you ever believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? We're going to stand in just a moment. We're going to sing a song. What I'm going to do, is so I'm going to stand right here. And uh, why I stand right there is, as we've studied the Word, remember we believe the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to help us understand our need for the Son of God. And maybe that's happened. happened last week. Maybe it's happened this morning. I'm going to stand right there. And if God's doing something in your life, it would be my great joy to speak with you and pray with you. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus and uh, you just think, man, some things got to get recalibrated in my life. The uh, invitation is open if you want to come to the front and pray. I always like to say the only thing we don't do at an invitation is we don't just sit there and do nothing. So would you stand with me? We'll pray together. It might be that you, sit, you stand there and sing praises to the Lamb who was slain on your behalf. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for Jesus. Thank you that the lion is the lamb. Thank you that it's my transgression, my sin, my iniquity that he willingly took upon himself. He's the one that was crushed, so I wouldn't be crushed. He's the one that was wounded. He took it instead of me. It's his stripes that are my healing. All my grief, all my sorrow caused by my own sinful actions and thoughts. and He's taken it. Thank you. Thank you. Increase our understanding and therefore our gratitude and joy for who Jesus is. Thank you that you're unchanging. You're still as full of compassion and loving kindness right now as you were when Moses was in the cleft of the rock. And the same will be true a billion years from now. We also recognize you are a holy and righteous God who will not clear the guilty. And the only way for our guilt to be cleared is is the cross of Christ. Lead our invitation time. Help us to sing with sing with joy, respond with critical thinking. You be glorified in Jesus name. Amen.